So today, I want to talk to you guys about a bit of a tender subject, the F word. Or as I prefer to say, finances. Apologies, we'll be back on air shortly. Ah, uh, we're back. Come on, it's not a dirty word. Have a chat with Bank of Ireland about your financial well-being. It's impossible to shock them. It's just a simple way to help take control of your money. Search Bank of Ireland Financial Wellbeing to book a chat. Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. And this week, it's been another busy week in coronavirus. And as you listen to this, we've gone back into a second national lockdown. Now, I'm going to be speaking about all of that and more with Barnsley East Labour MP Steph Peacock, who's joining me this week. And then later on, you'll be hearing from our political editor, Rob Parsons, who is speaking to one of our local democracy reporters. So let's get into it and uh, hear what Steph had to say. Steph, thank you so much for coming on Pod Zone Country. It's really, really good to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Well, thanks for having me. No, of course, of course. I mean, it's been really, really busy, hasn't it? I've seen you on telly loads over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> have you stopped? It's been super busy, yeah. <laughs> and... It's been busy over the last few months as well as an MP, I can imagine. Let's, we've got a few bits we want to talk about today, but I guess to start off, what has responding to coronavirus as a local MP been like? I imagine it's been quite kind of exhausting, really. I think it's been, it's been very busy because uh, it's been such an unknown situation for everyone involved and the restrictions and the changes um you know obviously changed very regularly so when obviously we went into lockdown in march and it was unprecedented circumstances people are understandably really nervous scared worried wanting to know what's happening um and then as we sort of came out into the summer obviously the rules changed in lots of different so there's i think the work for my office because obviously it's not just me it's uh, it's the team of people who work with me has very much sort of ebbed and flowed and sort of it's peaked at, the, at different points where we've seen those changes. Yeah, and it's been interesting for you in particular, hasn't it? Because you're in South Yorkshire, which kind of went into tier three restrictions before these national restrictions were announced. It's all been a bit kind of back and forth and weird. What was that process like? How was kind of, I guess, we heard a lot about poor communication from the government. I imagine that was quite frustrating. Yeah, it was frustrating because, you know, people... I think throughout this, I've wanted to do the right thing and understand and, you know, watch the telly and see, you know, when hospital rates are going up, infection rates are going up, that they are, they understand why we need to face greater restrictions. Um, but they sort of want clarity on what they are going to be. And, and we haven't really seen that. And I think um, the last few weeks felt like, well, they felt like a few months, but they've moved pretty quickly because um, Barnsley saw a peak in infections sort of in the summertime and then it came back down. And although we did have some localised peaks, um, it did. It was under control, and in the last few weeks, we haven't. We've seen it go up significantly, um, and so in other, unlike other parts of the north, um, you know, it's moved pretty quick here in Barnsley and South Yorkshire. You know, we went into tier two and then tier three, and obviously now we're going into national lockdown, and that's happened in the space of a few weeks. Whereas, you know, other parts of of the area in West Yorkshire, you know, obviously the northeast and and the northwest have been under greater restrictions for some time now. It's been, do you know what, I was saying this just the other day, I went on um, the BBC's new podcast, Yorkshire Cast, I said, thanks on my lord, we welcome all the competition, we're happy, we're happy to have friends, but um, I went on there and I was saying it's been really confusing for people I, I, that I've been speaking to, because one, like you say, things have changed so quickly, and the rules have changed so many times, but also in somewhere like Yorkshire, you know, you had, yeah, South Yorkshire under tier three, West Yorkshire still kind of under tier two but or clearly going into tier three you had north yorkshire in tier one but saying that it's hanging by a thread and probably going into tier two you had harlem east riding going into tier two york was already in tier two it's like how do you keep track of that kind of thing so is that kind of what you were hearing as well that people were confused 
yeah it is very confusing and obviously the tier system was made to make it less confusing and more straightforward and if implemented in the right way in a clear way with you know simple and straightforward distinctions between the tiers perhaps at the same time or a similar time you know I could I can see the thinking behind it but unfortunately that's just not how it rolled out and obviously you know people don't necessarily just live and work in one tier you know they might well you know live in Barnsley but work in West Yorkshire or you know or travel across the Pennines or you know up into North Yorkshire so it isn't as I can see the thinking behind it but I think in practice it's it's actually made the situation more confusing. Mm. So when we go back you know the government have said that when these national restrictions end maybe on December 2nd maybe afterwards if they need to be extended because rates are still high they're saying we're going to go back to this tier system are there kind of changes you'd like to see to that if that's what we go back to well i think we need clarity about what each of the tiers means and i think we also need equality of support for them because what you've you've seen recently and over the last few weeks and months is large parts of the area under greater restrictions so you know if you live in leicester or the northwest then you've been under restrictions for quite a long time and there's lots of other areas that i could put into that and yet it doesn't seem like those restrictions have been applied fairly. So, for example, Cornwall has higher rates now than Wigan did when it was put into those restrictions. And at the same time, when uh, areas have asked for more support, they weren't given the same support as they're now being given under a national lockdown. They were obviously being given an equivalent of 67% of their wages, whereas the furlough scheme, which Labour are calling for an extension to, and which now is being extended, it, that covers 80%. And that's a significant difference, particularly for people who work on minimum wage or low wages, because you haven't got the choice of paying two thirds of your rent or your, you know, your bills. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up that furlough point, actually, because it's something that we've heard, well, like you say, Labour, kind of um, saying about and saying that it needs to be extended. And Anne Burnham was one of the people who's really been banging the drum about it. But the reason I talk about Anne Burnham is because you've got your own metro there in South Yorkshire. You don't need Andy Burnham, do you? You've got Dan Jarvis. I imagine you work pretty closely with Dan because obviously an MP. And what do you think the benefits of having a metro mayor has been during this time? Do you think he's been able to kind of speak for South Yorkshire a bit better? I think that it has helped, hasn't it? Because, I mean, Dan's done a um, you know, really important and, and really excellent job throughout this, this crisis. And he has done a really good job of, of keeping local MPs and local leaders up to date and, and indeed asking for thoughts and input. And, and yet, as you say, speaking with one voice. And I think you know, the government, you know, for example, the government are the, you know, have been the biggest sort of, well, it was their idea, wasn't it? I suppose is what I'm, I'm trying to say. They, they, they came up with this form of local devolution. Yeah. And if you're going to come up with that form of local devolution, you, you really need to listen to the people who then get elected. Um, you can't just sort of pick and choose. And so I think, you know, the government, ha- it's obviously fast moving. It's obviously a difficult situation. But it is local leaders on the ground who know their communities best. And if the government you know, want a local and regionalised approach, then they need to make sure they're engaging with those local leaders as effectively as possible. Absolutely. And this is a thread that I am really keen to explore, actually, over the next few weeks, because, you know, you talk about that devolution and you're absolutely right. These are positions the government's been championing. Boris Johnson stood up at conferences and said, we want to, we want mayors in every part of the country. And this was a massive part of the government's election pledge in December, you know, as you well know, you were out on the campaign trail, but for listeners who maybe aren't quite as um, sad as us and spend our whole lives doing this kind of uh, this kind of thing, you know, there's this massive promise on levelling up, getting powers out of Whitehall, getting powers on the ground to metro mayors, to local councils, to things like that. And it was a really big point for them. And I suppose what I'm interested to hear from you is, we heard over the last couple of weeks about a lot of Northern Tory MPs writing to the government saying, look, don't forget about your levelling up promises. Is the tide changing again, maybe quicker than maybe quicker than Labour expected it to? Well, I think the problem with levelling up is it sounds great. And in you know theory, it's great and we welcome it and we want to see it. But in practice, it's just not there. To me, it's a slogan. I can't see any evidence of of levelling up here in Barnsley and you know I think you can take a few different examples of that and I guess if you start with that with that letter the Tory MP sent they they you know raised some really important issues you know I remember reading it I, I know it's another stuff down 
And if you, you know, if you look at some of the stuff they say, you know, they, and I'm, I'm sort of quoting, you know, they actually talked about a systematic disadvantage. Um, that's not really news to MPs like me, uh, who have represented the North, um, you know, before the last election. And I think it, I understand the concerns they're raising. And I'd support some of what they say, if not all of it. But the problem is, it's just words, it's not actions. And for the majority of the MPs that signed that letter, they also voted against free school meals, for example, the week before. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got to back up their words with actions. They can't just sort of write a letter to get headlines to, sh to sort of give the impression that they're standing up for communities. And it is curious that, you know, the government speak a really good game on, on, on inequality and on tackling that. Um, and are levelling up but I just think their actions don't add up to that you know it's not just free school meals if you look at education more broadly take the exams fiasco so in, in Barnsley 64% of kids um, or young people had their exam results downgraded and that's a phenomenal statistic when it's 40% nationally and for the majority of private schools it went up and the government could see this issue coming you know they obviously could see it happening in Scotland and yet they still chose to put young people's futures in the hands of an algorithm. And we, you know, throughout this pandemic, obviously it's been incredibly challenging for schools and for different educational um, establishments. But I, for the life of me, I can't work out why you would cut the laptop allocation by 80%. And that only happened two weeks ago. And how on earth can we ask kids who are isolating or who perhaps live with family members who are at high, high risk, how can we ask them to kind of continue their education if they can't have that access? And so I think it's all very well for the government to talk about levelling up and to talk about um, supporting the North. And, you know, it's a matter, obviously, of fact that they had, um, a, you know, a very good election result and they won lots of seats in the Red Wall. But if they're really serious about it, they need to make sure they need to start making different decisions, I guess. And I suppose the, the question I, I, I guess I'd kind of follow up that with is, do you think this has cut through? So all those things that you mentioned there, the exams, the free school meals, the laptops, the, the number 10 will often talk about, yeah, cut through. Do, do normal people care about this? And is it your um, your kind of opinion, your feeling that these kind of issues are getting outside of the Westminster bubble? Do, are people noticing? I think they are. I think, I think we have seen a shift um, in the last few weeks. Um, I think the majority of the public, they had a lot of sympathy um, and understanding for the government in an unprecedented circumstance and um, everybody whatever party you're from or no party was willing the government to do well and to be competent and successful because we all need them to be um, and I think that good goodwill was there for quite a long time and I, I feel like that sort of fractured in the last, last few months mm -hmm. and I think the government you know it is unprecedented circumstances um, and they are facing decisions they've not had to face before, but they're also making conscious decisions. So someone in Whitehall sat there and decided to cut the number of laptops. The government decided not to vote for free school meals when they put many more millions of pounds into the Eat Out to help out. You know, these are conscious decisions. They're not accidents and they're not things that they haven't had chance to think through. You know, even with the exams situation, albeit you know, they weren't anticipating young people not taking exams, but they could see what had happened in Scotland a few weeks prior. So I think the fact that people can, you know, people aren't stupid, they can see these decisions being made and they can see how they impact on their lives, and particularly the free school meals issue. Um, you know, I visited my local food bank a few weeks ago. Um, they've seen a, a tripling of demand, and in some parts of the borough, 800% increase in demand. And a lot of people getting in touch um, lots of people actually with Office of Health and saying we're going to cut back on you know the luxuries and we're going to give you the money. So lots of, of goodwill and kindness, but also a huge demand and a demand from areas of, of Barnsley and, and the wider South Yorkshire that they hadn't perhaps seen before. Um, and so I think that, that the, the issues that you know those issues have really had cut through in the last um, few months. But I think you, know, you could look at the wider government legislation. Um, Take the Towns Fund, for example, where um, about a year ago, the government actually intervened and decided the ministers took a decision rather than just leave it to civil servants to allocate m money to towns that needed it. That was the right. idea in a nutshell. Uh, but mo the majority of, those, of the towns that got money, so I think 100 got money, ministers 
took a decision over 61. Of the 61, they decided 60 were either Tory-held or Tory-target seats. It, here in Barnsley, we didn't get any money. And yet, by lots of indicators, the fact that, you know, whether you take the number of unemployed, which has doubled in the last six months and which was already higher than average, or you take the fact that Barnsley Council has seen the worst cuts in the country, 40% in 2010, um, I could pick out different indicators, but on lots of indicators, Barnsley would be deserving of money, and yet it wasn't given money because a political decision was made. And you know, Robert Jenrick, who is the community secretary, indeed, his own constituency—nearly three hundred—I think he comes at nearly three hundred most deprived, so not very, not not particularly deprived—got um, the, the maximum amount of money, I believe. So, you know, that doesn't always get the headlines, and that is. You know, it's not been, I mean, it has had a few headlines because of the controversy, but that is the sort of decision that's made quite regularly that gets slipped out uh, into, you know, in a press release, but actually has a real fundamental difference to people's lives. And and I think that's where I just can't buy the, the idea that they're, they're serious about levelling up, because if they were, areas like Barnsley would be getting, would be getting part of that. I think that's such an interesting point, you know, about the Times Fund, because I remember last, oh, when was it now? Last November, I believe it was, when Boris Johnson came, he came to Rotherham and he made a speech. I think it was at the Convention for the North or something like that. And he made this big speech. And um, one of the questions from the um, from the press, from, so from a fellow regional journalist, from Jen Williams at the MEN, who is brilliant, um, and we, you know, speak quite often, she said, she asked about the Times Fund and said, look, is this... Is this just on swing seats? Is this just on seats that you're targeting next month? And you know, he said, no, 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 no. And I think it's a real, maybe a bit of a life lesson for me here, easy for journalists sometimes to think that everyone knows about something because we've asked one question about it. And actually, it hasn't got that cut through. So we maybe need to be hammering at home a bit more and getting it out there to people. But um, it's a really interesting topic. And I, Actually, I said at the start that I'd seen you on TV a lot the last couple of weeks, and I thought that Tory MP letter was very interesting because you were on, was it Newsnight with David Morris? Yeah. And, yeah. And um, I don't know if you saw my tweet, actually, because he kind of said that the letter was, he was very angry that it had been leaked. It wasn't supposed to be like this public takedown of, of the government. And you know, he's not wrong. The letter itself was leaked, but the Northern Research Group did put out a press release about the letter and with extracts of it. So it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> he got himself a little bit confused from what I could tell because he'd signed a letter and, and then once it became public, he, he he asked for his name to go off, uh, be taken off it and then he decided to go on the television to talk about it. So uh, I think that's probably a, a question for him, but I think the, the board... Uh, and there was a real mix of, of different Tory MPs in there. And there's no doubt, you know, Jake Berry used to be a minister and, you know, he's now on the outside, isn't he? And he's got um, him and, and the people he's obviously working with uh, have got their policy priorities and they, and they want to push the government. And, I, you know, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Of course it's not. And as I say, if you read that letter, there are some really interesting um, and well-meaning points but my issue is well okay you're signing a letter why are you voting against what you're asking for why you know you we all make choices in politics and we all decide which way to vote and obviously you know I'm elected as a Labour politician and so I will vote almost you know generally with the Labour Party but you know I won't then write to them and disagree and I think that's what the Tory MPs really need to kind of reflect upon if they're serious about what they put in their letter they need to match their words with actions. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to stray from coronavirus a little bit. I know that's controversial in these times because what else is there going on? But actually plenty. Um, and talk a little bit about flooding because, mm -hmm. you know, South Yorkshire has been really hard hit by flooding the last, um, well, I was going to say a couple of years, but for as far back as I can remember, really. We've mm -hmm. had a flooding summit recently, yeah. haven't we? And this was promised, oh, nearly a year more than a year ago now in fact and um it's only really just been delivered tell us a bit about kind of what went on there this was to try and find all of these horrible horrific floods stop happening right yeah so about a year ago last november um we obviously suffered terrible floods in south yorkshire barnsley i think around 90 houses a number of businesses were affected um over in darf near where i live in darfield low valley 
uh, and the other side of Barnsley as well. And obviously Doncaster, uh, Fish Lake in particular that featured on the news um, mm. suffered significant flooding and it was at the start of the general election. So it got a lot of media attention. Uh, the Prime Minister visited and, and on that visit he committed to Dan Jarvis, the uh, the Metro Mayor and obviously MP for Barnsley Central, that he would hold a flooding summit and he'd bring uh, people together, agencies together to, to sort of look at what had happened and, and make sure it didn't happen again. And this obviously was promised in November. Um, myself and Dan and others uh, kept asking the government to hold it and they, they, they didn't, they didn't essentially. And obviously then we faced the pandemic um, they did then sort of say, oh, well, it's because of the pandemic, but they obviously did have four months before any sort of lockdown in which they, they would have engaged. Uh, however, we did finally get the, the flood summit. Um, it happened a few weeks ago. I think it was very useful. Uh, I think it was very positive. Uh, and I think it is a, a good thing to bring agencies together and politicians of all colours together to, to think about um, what happened, but more importantly, think about how we make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, this was long promised i'm really glad it was finally delivered because in the last few days as well we've seen more floods across yorkshire and it's clear that something needs to be done are you hearing from people already who are you know concerned going into the winter as you know back in november again are people scared yeah they are and it's such a traumatic experience if you've ever been flooded to go through and to have to leave your home and then with all the things that come after it to clean up all your possessions uh, the, the sort of trauma of leaving often having to deal with insurance companies and so on it's, so it is an incredibly traumatic experience and people it, where they've experienced it they don't you know, they don't want they don't want it to happen again and they want it, proactive action to make sure it doesn't uh, and i think that's what we really need is we need well we need some short-term uh, strategies to deal with it in the event of what happens and then we need a longer term strategy and proper investment to make sure we have a plan um so that you know we can't weather events and um, natural disasters will, will always happen but we've got to just do our best to, to, to deal with them in the best way we can mm -hmm. yeah you're completely right and one of those long-term I guess things that would help is an issue of insurance you know we heard last year and you talk about um those floods being in the press, I was there in the wellies. Um, a, a colleague who will rename who will remain unnamed from a rival publication um, turns up in a full suit, compare, complete with uh, shiny black shoes. I thought, no, mate, you're not in the right place. If you if you come into floods and you and your wellies, you're really not <laughs> not on it. But we carry on. Um, but yeah, you know. It was it was it was really devastating, and something a lot of people told me was that they either weren't insured because they couldn't get insurance because it was you know too expensive, or or they've been before so they couldn't actually get that insurance, um, or if they were insured, their insurers now weren't paying out on some kind of technicality. And um, you know you'll know just as well as me, but just for people listening, a review was launched by the government in eight and it's called the blank review and it's supposed to look into this insurance issue find out in Doncaster specifically they were looking at but it's an issue that affects lots of places exactly what went wrong and what can be done to help people get insured in the future and in the Yorkshire Post uh, last weekend on Saturday uh, we were reporting that actually that review is now late it was due out in September we're now in November so I imagine that is something that you've been pushing hard on as well, this insurance issue. What is it? Has there been any progress made or not really at this stage? Probably not. It's a question I asked ministers a few weeks ago. I asked the flooding minister when the review would be published and she wasn't forthcoming with an answer. Uh, I, I fed into the review. I met, um, I met with them virtually, obviously, earlier in the year. And as you, as you point out, you know, it, they focused it on... Doncaster but they were willing to hear from people in Barnsley and further afield in South Yorkshire and indeed in other parts of the country because this issue of insurance is obviously a real problem for areas that are of high risk of flooding or have suffered flooding before and I, I met with one of the big insurance companies this morning to talk mm. about how to do a longer term try and make the situation better and to try and make it more uniform across the board so it, perhaps having a more simplified some of the, the points that we talked about having a more simplified flood warning because we often talk about 
oh it only happens once every hundred years so if it's happened to you once you you don't necessarily think it's going to happen again whereas actually in some parts of the country sadly you will be of higher risk so just a more straightforward warning system could be quite helpful uh, and and more uh, more even and equal and fair standards across the, the board for insurance companies so that if you're going to have you know, a particular set of, of rules or regulations where flooding happens and there is the opportunity to have like a proactive flood grant to put in defences and indeed, if you've sadly suffered from flooding, if you're having something rebuilt, perhaps a little bit more uh, of a uniform approach. And that would make it a lot easier for insurance companies. It'd just be easier for customers. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, I, it, it kind of occurred to me when I was writing that piece saying that this review was late last week. And I thought, do you know what? It just, it feels a bit like another promise that hasn't quite got through yeah and it all ties in doesn't it it's all connected to everything we've been talking about today about making those promises and making sure you deliver them and i think i don't know i think people will remember that at ballot box in uh four years time yeah i think you know, i think that's true because it all happened in the middle of a general election it, you know it's all very well to stand there in your wellies in front of the tele cameras making promises and i think again people are reasonable and they understand things take time and they understand you can't just sort it out overnight but we are a year on, we're now approaching the winter, we're in November, uh, and there will be areas at risk of flooding. And while it will take some years to perhaps get those long-term defences in, it's not just about money, it's about how we spend that money, and it's about the coordination. And one of the frustrations that uh, constituents have said to me is the fact that when it happens, you, know, you might ring the local authority, or you might ring the fire brigade, or the environment agency, uh, and in the actual sort of moment, the, the emergency services will do a, you know, a fantastic job supporting and helping rescuing people. But there's no one area to coordinate that response, either in the longer term, when you're looking at planning defences and looking at the support for communities, but neither in, when you're in the middle of it either. And I think there's a real argument to have some form of, of sort of, you know, flooding coordination centre so that people have a number they can ring up they can find information in slower time about prevention about risk but if they find themselves facing a flood warning or a flood they can ring and they can get directed to the support and there is somebody willing to sort of take responsibility for allocating it to the right agency so it doesn't keep getting passed around from from one to the other because it's not that the agencies aren't doing a good job they all are but I think it sometimes lacks coordination. Mm, no, absolutely. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll see some more of that this winter if if um, people are subjected to those horrible floods. Just it really is. You can see the pictures and it's horrible. But um, I suppose I'm just going to ask you one more thing because I know you're very busy and I'll let you go because there's loads going on. But we've talked about coronavirus. We've talked about flooding. That's clearly something else that's going on. I mean, they, your work as a you know, constituency MP hasn't stopped just because coronavirus has appeared. Can you, have you what, what else have you been kind of working on recently? What else has been going on in the background? I think you're absolutely right. It's obviously dominated, well, everybody, whatever job you do, you've seen changes to your lives and to your circumstances and so on. And my office uh, do a great job dealing with casework and with people's issues and problems and questions. And and while they have been focused on the issues around the pandemic and generally the support and that people are concerned about, uh, there's obviously lots of other issues that people come um, to you as a local MP and they want you to champion and stand up for. And one of those issues that I've been campaigning on for the last couple of years is on dangerous driving. I had a very sad case where my constituent, uh, Jackie Wellman, was out for her daily walk and was sadly killed by four men who stole a HGV lorry and were joyriding it around Barnsley. And these four men had a hundred convictions between them. One had already killed by deathly dangerous driving. This was absolutely tragic. And they were imprisoned for dangerous driving. But the judge, and if you read his judgment, he talked about wanting to give them longer in prison, but couldn't because the maximum sentence was 14 years. So in effect, they'll they'll serve between four and six years. Um, Johnny Wood, who's um, become a, a friend of mine with my constituent came to see me and um has campaigned tirelessly on this for justice for his sister um and basically wants to see a change in the law so that the dangerous driving can be life imprisonment and not just uh, 14 years um 
and so we've done a number of things over the last co couple of years uh, he came to meet the justice minister i co-sponsored a bill um, which was put down by the former prime minister theresa may which if came into law would see that law change and the government pressed them a number of times asked the prime minister this directly uh, they have committed now to changing the law on dangerous driving and that is welcome i think um, um, and I'm you know, really pleased that we were able to sort of push the issue and campaign on the issue and, and, and hopefully, well, certainly got that commitment to change the law, but hopefully see that change in the law. But I think this case that sadly shows a number of things wrong with the justice system. You know, if a HGB lorry was joyriding around London, it would not take three or four days. And that's because of police cuts because you know, it had been rung in, but we had seen huge cuts to policing in South Yorkshire. And if you look at the, the four men that were convicted, you know, one was in the probation system. You know, they had all been convicted previously. And we've obviously seen the fragmentation of the probation system and the part privatisation of it. Um, and the government, again, has sort of done a U-turn on that. They've said they're going to bring that back in-house. And that really can't come sort of quick enough. Uh, and so there's a number of issues, I think, that um, this really tragic case has sort of shone a light on that. I just think... I, you know, I'm really pleased and hopeful the law will change on dangerous driving, but you know, our justice system as a whole um, is really struggling and, and needs to see improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of the reason that I wanted to, I guess, bring up something like that or talk about that is I think really, really often kind of the day-to-day -day work that you guys do, the MPs do, and your office does to campaign for constituents can sometimes get kind of lost in the background of, you know, the big political stories of the day, if the Prime Minister's making a statement or the Chancellor's doing something, you sometimes don't always hear about these things. And I think it's important to kind of highlight, because that will make a difference to people's lives, a massive difference, or at least help, uh, maybe help some people get some closure if there's been a tragic event. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think we, the, the thing about this job is you just sort of never, every day is very different. And um, you don't know what issue is going to kind of land on your desk, and and there are a real, you know, some are some are really tragic and difficult, and you know others have lots of hope and 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 so on in them. So it's it, they all they all vary quite considerably. Um, but you know it's sort of your job as an MP to just try your best to give that voice to people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what a lovely note to end it on, Steph. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Right, now let's head over to Rob and he is chatting with Chris Young. Rob, over to you. Hi, and this is the part of the uh, podcast where we talk to uh, one of the local democracy reporters in, in Yorkshire. We've been to Wakefield, to Leeds, to Sheffield, uh, Kirklees, um, all, all over uh, this great region. And this week, we're going to be looking at what the big political picture is in the city of Bradford, commonly touted as uh, the, the country's youngest city. It's got a whole host of interesting things going on. And here to tell us all about it is Chris Young, who is the local democracy reporter for Bradford. Chris, how are you doing? Not bad, thanks. How are you? Good. I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. We were, we've just been discussing how we uh, both avoided staying up all night to uh, watch the US election. So we're pretty fresh to talk about uh, local politics uh, today, which has to be a has to be a good thing. So the um, you, 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 you've got five topics to talk about uh, things that are going on in Bradford at the moment. And um, the first one, which I guess is uh, something that will apply across the board, is how the current changing situation with the with, with the lockdown and the rules that apply uh, in Bradford is really uh, impacting on on local decision making. I mean, how, how is that manifesting itself locally? Well, it's I think Bradford has been uh, changes long before everywhere everywhere else because uh, Bradford's been in since the summer since some stricter lockdown measures. So it's been a, a bit of an added um, thing that everyone has to kind of like look over the back for. Is it going to be? go you know are the restrictions going to be increased are they going to be decreased and i know as a reporter it's something that you know almost every day since i think was it late june july um you're thinking is it going to change again today and obviously nationally it's changed a lot um in the past week and i, th I think it's just it's been very difficult for anyone to keep up um members of the public and the council um you know, opposition councillors as well as leaders, 
just seems to be in the past week has been uh, ridiculous for how many changes there's been and the, you know really fast moving um you know within days of Bradford being put in well and the rest of West Yorkshire being put in tier three and uh, waiting for that to start which was due to start today I believe um you know then there was over the weekend announcement that everywhere's going into lockdown so you know plans just being te- torn up by businesses and the council um like for example there's an uh, executive meeting on monday which is the council leadership meeting uh, online um they are going to have a report discuss a report about how bradford's dealing with lockdown new measures being taken to support communities and things that report was written last week um with tier three in mind i believe and now we're within days that report's probably obsolete now because the stricter uh, national lockdowns come in so it just goes to show how fast things are changing and you know it, it's not unusual now for me to sit in on a meeting uh, online obviously uh, to hear an update on a report that I've had sight of beforehand and managed to go through to you know hear an officer say oh almost everything's changed since we wrote this report. So I don't know whether, you know, now that we're in a month long lockdown, that there's going to be a bit more stability and you kind of can plan ahead at least for the next month, but just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess the the big question, I suppose, is once the current lockdown ends, uh, in theory on December the 2nd, although it could be later, whether Bradford and the rest of West Yorkshire will return to tier three uh, the tier three lockdown that they were supposed to go into, or whether they'll go back in at a lower level. I suppose it depends on what level the uh, infection rates are at at that point, and you know, hospitalizations and and and, and so forth. It's, yeah, I mean, uh, so we, it's, we uh, don't know if there's you know if the tier system's going to come back, or if if they're now going to switch to circuit break lockdowns, or well, it's, it's so fast moving. I don't think anyone knows really. No, I guess what, what uh, looking forward into the slightly longer term, uh, and uh, you know, we, we're it's just a case of getting through it at the moment and trying to support uh, local communities as best they can in terms for in terms of Bradford City Council, but uh, or Bradford Council. But looking forward, are, are are there plans in place to help Bradford recover from the current crisis? And do do, do you get a sense of what a post COVID recovery? could look like for uh, for Bradford and the surrounding area? Well, I remember when it started, um, you know, the reports and the meetings were, they were setting up like scenarios where, you know, if lockdown lasts for three months, how much it's going to require funding wise to fund PPE and things, whether it lasts six months, whether it lasts 12 months. And at the time I was thinking, oh, that's a bit, pessimistic putting a 12 month one in and that might be what we're looking at now but I think that the difficulty is you've got to balance the here and now like providing PPE making sure council facilities are you know clean and um, COVID secure with looking in that long term and and I I think it's it's probably going to be quite difficult because obviously a lot of council projects are funded by you know business rates and require businesses to be operating obviously if a lot of businesses shut down then that means fewer business rates uh, if lock, the longer lockdown lasts the fewer um, leisure centers that can be open so less income um, to the council uh, theaters shut I mean the Alhambra being shut for a good chunk of time the Alhambra Theatre that's going to have a massive impact on council finances so um, I think that they do have plans in place but I think a lot of it's contingent on you know dependent on what how long it lasts and how when things can reopen when people are likely to return to you know the city centre offices pay parking charges which all funds uh, these projects I mean there are well longer term ones that I think with as far as I know there's not been any cancelled projects in Bradford so long a lot of their uh, schemes that they've 
uh, had in place beforehand are still going ahead as far as I'm aware the one city park which is to build grade a office space in Bradford I mean that was conceived before you know the idea of having to recover from a covid lockdown that that was more just to help Bradford's economy recover from years of uh, austerity I mean will that go ahead will an office building be what's needed in the future um other ones like the the new plan for the new market on Darley Street that's you know, I think I'm a bit more confident that that's going to go ahead and be a success because you know if building something afresh it, it kind of gets you around the uh, Covid secure issue you know rather than have to go and alter the existing markets they can they've got something about to be built and they can you know take social distancing into account and and make that work so there's some schemes that you know I think will go ahead and uh, help the city centre recover anyway um, others you know might be put up in the air depending on how, how long lockdown is um, and obviously there's there's things throughout the district as well road schemes you know enterprise zone schemes and uh, a lot of these were in place beforehand but you get the impression that the council's really hoping that they have a, a big part to play in the economic recovery after lockdown but we're just going to have to wait and see i think yeah i know that the 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 way that bradford city center looks has been a an ongoing discussion for for years and years isn't it and 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 i suppose uh like you say the the as with other cities around the country and in and in yorkshire the uh civic leaders are having to now reimagine what city centers and town centers might look like and whether the plans they previously had in place are the right plans uh going going forward which is is definitely an interesting interesting debate um i guess in, in west yorkshire and in bradford the topic that's sort of hanging over uh everything and could potentially make quite a pivotal dif uh, difference is uh devolution obviously um next may we'll have a uh a, the first elected metro mayor for west yorkshire uh after a, the long-running devolution saga uh there's a deal signed between the government and West Yorkshire leaders, um, which means that potentially we'll get more money and powers for uh, whoever is eventually elected Metro Mayor. Um, what sense do you get talking to people in Bradford about how much of a difference uh, this will actually this will actually make? Well, I think it's it's something that um, the the leaders and the council have um, you know have, have raised and uh, talk about quite a lot. I don't think it's something that's really caught on with the public so far. Um, I mean, it's. I think there was a consultation into the devolution and it, it got a few thousand responses, which was apparently one of the highest for a, a devolution, um, a regional devolution in the country. But, um, I mean, for example, there was a, a public consultation in Bradford on dog fouling and dog control orders a few months ago, and that got much more, a much bigger response from the public than the devolution deal did. So I think, I think it's some, it's a bit nebulous at the moment. I think people do know what devolution is, but I think unless you can give specific examples of how it's going to help, I think uh, it's difficult for people to engage with it at the moment. I know obviously the leadership know all about it and, you know, they've got all these plans, but I think it it may be, it's not yet something that's massively enthralled the public. I think by the time you're talking about, um, oh, you know, you can, we're going to get this money extra. So we're going to be able to fix up this road or build a new train station here. I think that's when it's going to hit home to people. But at the moment, I don't think it's it's particularly um, something that the people on the streets in Bradford are talking about. Um, I mean, no. that might be might have changed in the past few weeks because obviously uh, the um, Metro mayors have had a big part in this tier debate in Manchester and Liverpool. I think people know a lot more about elected mayors large metropolitan areas than they did a few months ago so I don't know if that will you know maybe 
make people realise how significant it is. Um, yeah, well, possibly so. I mean, um, the I, I guess um, what what feeds partly into that is that how the powers and the you know the what, what the metro mayor does and what difference they will make depends in part on who eventually uh, gets elected. And obviously, one of the the main candidates, uh, possibly one of the front runners, is the the current leader of Bradford Council, um, Susan Hinchcliffe. Mm-hmm. I mean, for people who you, I, I imagine you, you you know her relatively well, having reported on. The council for a while. I mean, what um, for people li- listening in other parts of West Yorkshire who might not know her so well? I mean, what what can you tell us about her that might sort of a, that she might bring to the role of West Yorkshire mayor should she should she get elected? Um, I think she she does have a, a ear to the ground with um, skills and uh, you know training education. I think I think well she she will always say you know uh, whenever. She, she can. She's quite proud of the fact that I just said earlier in this uh, discussion that Bradford's one of the youngest cities um, in uh, the UK, and uh, I think because of that, you know, being the leader of one of the youngest cities, she does very much have her eye on, you know, how skills training is delivered, how um, you know things like how education is, um, apprenticeships. I think uh, she sees that as being a big part of Bradford and how Bradford can recover from, you know, probably a good decade or so of um, doldrums. But I think she'd bring probably bring that to the rest of West Yorkshire as well, because um, it's obviously, uh, you know, Leeds is an emerging city as well. But, you know, it's rapidly growing, isn't it? And a lot of, you know, new skilled jobs being created there. So I, th- I think she... She's she's the type of leader who I think sees the need to get people trained and skilled up as a way out of um, as a way out of you know recession and um, the economic doldrums. But I think she, she does also um, seem to uh, back a lot of the schemes that well she's leader of West York uh, chair of West Yorkshire Combined Authority as well. And obviously, she's um, they're responsible for quite a few big in infrastructure schemes. So, I think she um, she does have her eye on that as well. Um, I, th- I think you know she, she's got the experience with West Yorkshire, um, having those links to West Yorkshire Combined Authority. So, yeah, I think it's um, she's definitely. I'd imagine she's definitely one of the front runners. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see who else throws the hat into the ring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you you mentioned uh, Leeds and sort of the, the the way that the city is growing, and obviously one of the the uh, interesting talking points in Leeds recently is their uh, the city council's decision to uh, scrap the plans for the uh, a clean air zone where the most polluting vehicles would be uh, um, charged to enter the the city centre on the grounds that uh, that the, the fall in traffic during the pandemic meant that it was no longer necessary and I know that environment and clean air is a big debate in Bradford as well I mean what what are the main talking points uh on 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 the Bradford side well I think in Bradford it's it's a bit of a a split it's it's obviously a city that you know does have well a district that has a lot of catching up to do with other urban areas like Leeds next door and I think you know it it does recognize there is that recognition that you know what does what needs to be done to catch up and i think a lot of the answers with with the leadership and probably if you ask some people on the street is that you know the roads are too congested you know um we need need uh wider roads link roads things like that but then that contrasts with you know bradford council's commitment to um know to get more people walking cycling getting public transport so uh, I, I think you know it's an important thing that bradford does tackle clean air i think it's they will probably face some difficulties and pushback from the public because um you know the ideas of you say new cycle lanes they, they go down well with obviously cyclists and uh, environmental campaigners but a lot of motorists don't necessarily like them 
Um, so I think it, it's a fine line the council has to walk um, and West Yorkshire Combined Authority, which funds a lot of the project. It's, you know, uh, it's kind of, do you improve infrastructure, build new roads, make it easier for companies to, you know, have HGVs driving through Bradford de delivering goods, or do you focus more on the um, clean air side of things and try and get more people to say transport by freight, uh, you know, commute to work by train. Um, and it's, it's a difficult position. I, I wouldn't want to really be making the decisions because on the one hand, you know, you've got the very real need to improve the air quality. On the other, you've got businesses and members of the public who, you know, might kick back against any, you know, curbs to what they're able to do transport wise or commuting wise. So um, I think that's, the, uh, you know, a difficult position. And, um, you know, I think Leeds getting rid of its clean air zones thrown a, a bit of a spanner in the works too, because, you know, if Leeds can do it, why does, you know, if Leeds doesn't need this clean air zone, why does Bradford need one? Um, and I think that, you know, that's going to be an issue that comes up when the, the clean air zone comes closer to being implemented, I think. I mean, there's the argument maybe that Leeds has more, Leeds City Centre has more office staff that aren't commuting anymore. Um, but I think we'll just have to see how it pans out, really. Obviously, all these plans were written before the last lockdown. You know, are people going to be willing to go back to offices and commute as much? After we've had two lockdowns now, uh, will they ditch the cars and will that mean we don't need a clean air zone? I mean, it's, it's I know everyone says this, but it's an unprecedented time. So it's hard to judge how the current situation might affect that clean air zone plan. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, as you say, it's a situation that we probably won't get uh, any uh, certainty on uh, for for a while. And um, Chris, thank you so much for that. There's uh, clearly a lot going on uh, in Bradford, and I dare say some of these topics are going to still be uh, pressing uh, in in the next few months. So we'll, I, I hope, uh, maybe in in the new year, we can come back and see how some of them are uh, progressing. So um, thank you to Chris Young, and we will uh, see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and today you've also heard from our political editor, Rob Parsons. Now, you can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon. It's on them all, and we would love it, absolutely love it, if you could leave us a review and subscribe and tell your friends as well. So we'll be back next week with another episode. How long have I got? 30 seconds. Okay, there's an amazing offer for Sky Q I have to tell you about. Imagine having all of Sky TV, new originals and box sets, together with all of Netflix. Plus you get Spotify, YouTube and catch-up TV like RTE Player. Sky Q has everything you love in one place. It just makes life easy. Oh, and it's less than you think. Search Sky 30 to find out more. New Sky TV customers only. Setup fees, minimum term and further terms apply.